Welcome to the Slava Connection. Today is special for many reasons, but uh, we got new digs, Matt. Yeah, we did. The audience can't see it, but we're in the official UT recording studio. Hopefully you guys can hear it. I, I, I can feel it. I feel like Jordan Belfort here. I am not leaving. There's an expletive in that, if you're familiar. And we have two pros with us, two European specialists, Dr. Lawrence Rade and Dr. Michael Mosser. The one thing that I think unites pretty much all voters is that they've seen the past two, three years and they've said pox on all your houses, right? Like <laughs> The EU is like a drunk, you know? It just sort of wanders its way down the street, stumbling, but never quite falling, right? Yeah, it turned out really interesting, although it was uh, pretty dark, but we'll see if things won't be as tough as it seems at the moment. It's definitely reminiscent of the first week after daylight savings. It's darker earlier, it's cloudy, and uh, that's kind of how we feel about Europe this week. But uh, hope you guys enjoy. No! Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. So, the Brexit saga continues. Uh, it's just a slow motion train wreck that's been continuing on for years now, and now the newest chapter in the saga is these newest uh, parliamentary elections that are going to take place on December 12th, the way I see it, there are kind of maybe four possible outcomes, right? We could have a labor victory and they have their plan for dealing with Brexit. There's the conservatives. There's kind of a pan remain coalition vague that's like the Lib Dems plus labor. And then there's a potentially a no deal uh, coalition if it's enough conservative MPs who are against the deal and enough maybe Brexit party people. And so I guess the question is, first off, what does each of those outcomes mean for the EU and how would it affect their likelihood to grant yet another extension to this process? And how does the resolution of Brexit, these various resolutions of Brexit, affect the EU? It's pretty clear that the election in the UK um, is being pitched as the Brexit election. But I would actually caution to, um, that there's a lot more domestic politics at stake here. Um, there is a really interesting school of thought that says this is what Boris Johnson wanted all along, right? That he's crazy like a fox and that, uh, you know, sort of all of those parliamentary defeats uh, in late summer, early fall really did, in fact, set himself, set him and the Conservative Party up for what he wanted, which was this general election campaign where he can basically say, uh, give me the majority. I will take us out. And I will run the country the way that we it has needed to be run, right? With Brexit no longer uh, front and center, sapping all the legislative energy from Parliament. Um, and you have to also remember that, you know, nothing has happened in Britain domestically, nothing of substance for three and a half years. I mean, there are policies in place that date back to the Cameron era. I mean, we have to like leap over. Uh, Theresa May's prime ministership in some ways. A lot of the domestic policies that are in place, if you go to Britain today, many of the transportation policies, for example, a lot of the infrastructure, the education policies, healthcare, all the big sorts of things that general election voters care about. Uh, this is their chance to actually uh, weigh in on this. And that's Boris Johnson's uh, general election pitch. That's what he's saying is that forget Brexit. I'll give you Brexit. Brexit is going to happen, right? 31 January, we're out. 
uh, outgoing commission president Juncker has already said, yeah, you know, we have no issues with the 31st of January Brexit is done. It's a done deal. It will be past tense. We're finally getting to that. And so don't make this the Brexit election. This is what Johnson is saying. Make it vote for us, the conservative party, and we're good to go. And Labour is having a really hard time responding to that, actually, because and the Lib Dems as well. You know, sort of the opposition parties have cast their lot into, no, no, we have to rethink Brexit. And Johnson, in some ways, is being very, very astute uh, by saying, no, we don't. You know, we've had that discussion. We're done. Yeah, and I think what, what I would add to that, so yet again, I'm vehemently agreeing with Mike, which makes for a less interesting podcast, but we'll, 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 get, to, we'll get to something in the end. But um, I actually also think that it's, it's a mistake to think that just because we are paying attention to UK politics and this election because of Brexit, that the voters are seeing it the same way. What I actually think is going to be interesting is that there's going to be different kinds of voters. There is going to be a type of voter, I think those who are really scared of what Brexit is going to do, I, I would suggest those who are actually well informed about Brexit, who are like, okay, this is our one chance to maybe undo this entire mess. So there's going to be, I think, a big gain made by the Lib Dems because the Lib Dems are the only party that from the beginning has said, this is a stupid idea. And if we ever get into power, we're just going to undo it, which the UK um, government at any point can be like, just call backsies and say, we're, you know, this was a stupid idea. So I think the hardcore remainers, right, are going to come out in droves and vote for Lib Dems, SNP, you know, the Scottish National Party, um, those parties that have been clear that they just want to undo all of Brexit, right? But for the rest of the voters, I think, especially those, you know, disaffected, disaffected Tories that um, uh, that really swung the, the Brexit referendum in the direction of leave, they're just tired of this. They've been they, for three years, they've heard, oh, you know, Brexit is going to happen. Brexit is going to happen. What they've seen is that it's just absolutely impossible to do. I think they're disillusioned with the Tory party because they couldn't get this done. But also by this point, I don't think that's their main priority. And so I actually think this this election is going to be it's going to have a great effect on Brexit. But the election itself is not going to be about Brexit. And part of the reason I think for that is that the Labour Party doesn't know what it wants when it comes to Brexit, right? So Jeremy Corbyn has, you know, after three and a half years, I still don't know what Jeremy Corbyn wants about Brexit, nor do any of the voters. And so I think for people who are um, who are voting because they think Brexit is important, they're not going to vote for Labour mm. because that's that's not a, a vote in either direction, either mm. pro or. So I think what's gonna, you're going to have is you're going to have um, a lot of, you know, the Lib Dems are going to get stronger because a lot of the hardcore remainers are going to be like, this is our only chance. The hardcore Brexiteers are going to say, well, we voted for the Tories to get us out of the EU. They didn't manage. So we need to vote for Nigel Farage or one of the crazies, right? Which means, again, if the Lib Dems gain a lot of seats and then the uh, Brexit party gains a lot of seats, then what you end up with is, again, no single party with a majority. So you're going to be exactly back to square one where you have a a house of... um, uh, you know, a, a parliament that is unwilling to sign off on any kind of Brexit. And so then we get back to the question of, you know, what does the EU do? And to me, the fact that they granted the second extension means they're going to grant as many extensions as mm-hmm. as the UK wants. Um, I think at this point, if you've granted two extensions, there's no real reason not to grant the third one. Mm-hmm. What I think was really telling is that this time when this extension was granted to January 31st, the heads of state didn't even meet. <laughs> this was this, this was decided on 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 a much lower level, which is basically saying this is not politically interesting enough for us to even talk about. Wow. Like it wasn't even worth worth you know summoning all of the uh, the heads of state and government to do this, which I think is very telling. That means they don't like the rest of the EU just doesn't care, and they're like, you know what, like yeah. keep doing this madness for as long as you want. Um, I don't see anybody, you know, 
at this point, you know, vetoing a kind of extension, nobody has that political will. Nobody's going to veto. You're right. And, you know, the EU is famously good at kicking the can down the road as far. They hate making decisions that commit to anything tangible, right? You know, and so it would, it's very, it's the most passive aggressive international organization on (laughs) the planet. It is really just like, can't you just figure this out on your own, right? Which is why you're right. You know, sort of if it comes to that, if, if we do have a result in the UK that is just as muddy and messy as it is right now and has been since 2016, then yeah, the EU will essentially just cover its eyes and pretend that nothing, uh, (laughs) sort of like, okay, the UK is actually not there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, They've been essentially operating that way for, you know, a year now already, right? I mean, the UK doesn't participate in the institutions. The UK is essentially, you know, sort of dead country walking in the EU. And so from the EU's perspective, the only thing is just sort of it's a drag kind of institutionally. It's this millstone around the EU's neck, but it's not really hurting. I mean, Macron would like the EU, uh, Britain to go for right. sure. But as Lauren says... He's not going to go on record. You know, the veto is a is a strong move that no EU leader is going to make. Yeah, right. And I think you know the, the other thing to think back to, right, is that you know if if you are working for the EU, um, you look back at precedents of you know these kind of from the EU's perspective bad decisions that states you know have made or populations have made. Every single time, what they've done is wait long enough for them to have another referendum and sort of undo their mistake, right? Mm. That's yep. that that's that's you know that's worked for the EU three four times now yeah, with the exactly. Dutch and the Irish and mm-hmm. you know in terms of referendums on different kinds of issues, right? So I think you know the, the EU is basically like you know what like we've seen this stuff before. Um, the UK at some point is going to have another referendum. Um, more young people are going to vote, etc. They're going to vote to stay, and then we'll forget all of this ever happened, right? I'm not sure that that's actually going to happen but but i think that's from the eu's perspective that's that's actually not an illogical right and may in fact be the best case scenario yeah how how decisive do you imagine the result of the vote kind of actually being because it seems to me that while we could certainly imagine some you know, more more technical extensions and things like this the one good thing of this election is that this is going to be kind of a path determining election it seems to me i want to see if you guys disagree with that because it seems to me that okay labor has their plan which is the our labor brexit deal and and then put it up to a referendum if it's a, a pan remain coalition then that's going to start halting the Brexit process, and it's going to be hard to re- resume it again. Uh, if it's the Conservatives' deal, then where, there it is. Finally, they have the con- parliamentary majority for a deal, and it's going to go through. Um, and then, Breg- you know, hard deal, no deal is no deal. So it seems to me that I can't imagine a scenario where we don't kind of know how this is going to play out for the, for a, in a longer term from this election. Or do you guys not, is there something I'm not seeing about how decisive this could be? It's definitely the most optimistic assessment, right? Okay. Is that, um, <laughs> you know, that this election will provide some clarity. I mean, remember, Theresa May had a snap election for exactly this reason, and yeah. she blew it because she was a terrible campaigner. <laughs> uh, if, you know, Johnson is a great campaigner. That speech with the police cadets notwithstanding, that was a disaster, but to his, you know, he was tired or whatever. But, mm-hmm. um, he will campaign much harder and better than Jeremy Corbyn, who is famously bad at campaigning. Uh, I think Lawrence's point about the Lib Dems is an interesting one. The, you know, yeah, I think they will increase their majority um, or their share, not to anywhere close to a majority. But um, clarity-wise, this 
election should give us some indication of where the populace comes down, you know, sort of on issues plus Brexit, right? You know, sort of, and so Brexit is, you know, sort of one of a basket. Um, and it really does come to mind, you know, which, where in voters' minds is Brexit? How salient is it in their minds? And you're starting to see in polls, and, you know, we know what to make of polls, but you're starting to see in polls, especially in the Midlands and, you know, sort of that Brexit's not really what they're voting on, right? And no surprise. Yeah. So this, in some ways, is shaping up to be a kind of traditional British election. Uh, and will that mean then at the end of this thing that we'll have another hung parliament or we'll have, you know, sort of the DUP, I think, is actually going to be a loser in this election. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling that they're actually no longer going to be the kingmaker party. Um, and it'll be either the conservatives, you know, sort of running the show or this kind of pan remain. Um, but... Only time will tell. I mean, this is the problem. The, the polls are all over the place right now. We're still early on, and the campaigning is just getting started. This week that we're now ending is when the campaign really kind of kicked off into high gear. I mean, I would think, again, I don't, I don't think Brexit is going to be the most salient issue for voters. And also, I don't expect any of the parties to come out with a clear majority. Because the one thing that I think unites pretty much all voters is that they've seen the past two, three years, and they've said, pox on all your houses right like the, if, if i'm a a british voter i've probably lost confidence in all major uh uk parties right um and the major one labor labor and and and, and tories right the La labor party on the biggest issue of basically british politics in the past 50 years still has no opinion that's inexcusable um the tory party has a, an opinion but it has two opinions because it's schizophrenic about it um and so it has tried for three years to ram this thing through and hasn't managed, right? So I think that the general sense is that the current parliament is um, is incompetent, right? Is uh, is something that needs to be replaced, and that always favors outside parties, right? Like non-traditional parties. So that's why I think the Lib Dems might come back. That's why I think the Green Party might make a big yeah. um, a, so, a big splash, right? There's a, we forget that there's there's I think one Green MP, one. Caroline yeah. Lucas, right, yeah. in um, in the British Parliament. Yeah. I think she's she's going to be joined by some 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 other uh, other peers, right? It's, it's tricky because it's first past the post, right? Like. Um, it's it's a different uh, you know the election system doesn't favor necessarily small parties but but I think they are going to be the big winners here and anytime you of course you know um, give give more um, seats to small parties you have fragmentation because you don't have a, a majority so I actually think it's going to be decisive and it's going to decisively show that the UK is still completely torn about Brexit and that point that you were making about the split there's a there's a huge split in the British system between parliamentarians and the populace, right? And Johnson has played this to the hilt, right? You know, I mean, you saw this in the in the various defeats that he had in the bills, you know, sort of it's the people versus parliament. And if this turns into a people versus parliament election, which is what the conservatives actually want, right? Um, and, and to kind of sweep away these parliamentarians who are standing in the way of the people's will, right? Then you end up with a, in a very dangerous scenario uh, where you basically institutionalize this uh, distrust of institutions themselves, right? And, you know, and you end up with this, you know, so democracy has gotten us exactly nothing for the last three years and maybe longer, right? And what is, you know, sort of we vote. What will be really interesting is if, for example, if this plays out in the scenario that Lawrence is talking about and you end up with maybe a pan-remain coalition, you know, something where we undo 
uh, Brexit or at least roll it way, way back. Then you've got folks who are like, yeah, so that referendum was meaningless. I'm either never going to vote again or I'm now I'm only going to vote for Farage or somebody over, you know, further down off the spectrum. And we end up with yeah, democracy, democratic institutions, this whole system of kind of consensual governance. Throw it all out, right? We just we want to be led by somebody strong. We want to have decisiveness. This indecisiveness is the problem. Uh, these are the kind of things. These you know sort of foundational pillars are only as strong as the belief in them. And as soon as that, and it has been weakened pretty substantially here in the last couple of years worldwide. But uh, in Britain, if that were to go, it will go very quickly, and you end up in a very different and. And frankly, very unpleasant situation. Right, and to add to that, right? I mean, so we've seen this in other places where populist parties come to the fore and, and yeah. sort of start hacking away these these general norms of of governance. But it's especially tricky in the UK because they don't have a written constitution. Yeah. Right. So a lot of it, it really is just about. It's essentially we've been this kind of polite for seven hundred years, right? Like that's how. Yeah. You know, right. Um, exactly. An you know, act of parliament years, right? tomorrow. Like, right. Exactly. Um, yeah. and, and that's. That's essentially the, the the basis of this kind of you know um, you know sovereignty lies within the parliament right this kind of idea but none of that is written down anywhere really so all of these checks and balances are are much less robust than they are here in the United States or even in other you know constitutional democracies so that I think is where it gets tricky is that I think populism is especially uh, dangerous in in the UK because of that lack of of, mm-hmm. of sort of institutional clarity of checks and balances right and so. Um, Right. So that that I think can 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 start to be quite quite dangerous. Yeah, if I hear the second referendum really getting, you know, a lot of traction, that's when I get really nervous. Referend I'm on record in lots of different places as saying referenda are just a terrible idea right. just across the board. And you can see that in people's opinions on Brexit itself. I mean, there's the majority is probably like a vague leave proposal that is sectioned off three times between different ways you could leave. So the fact is like probably more people want to leave, but there's no one way that is over 30%. Yeah, the, the polling and, on that is so fascinating how it's like when you put these three options, they reject all mm-hmm. options kind of thing. It's a, it's a preferential deal where it's like, I prefer this over this. Mm-hmm. But what it leads up to is that all all options are, are irpre- not. Right. Preferred. And when you make it a binary, in or out, right. then, you know, you've, you've, it's, you know, ridiculous absurdity. You get this, you know, sort of all of it boils down to this little tiny question, which is an enormous question, which is so. And that's is exactly everybody in 2016 before the election, before the referendum was saying this is where this is going to go. If you pay any attention to how referenda you yeah, know, have probably, worked in the past, it, it puts the leaders in a bad position, too, because it's actually coming with clarity on this question is going to make you defeat it the quickest because Certainly then right. you're falling into that sub 30% bucket immediately. So this is really going to be a referendum on indecision. I don't think anyone's going to emerge above that, you know, 35% stake and we're going to be in the exact same position. Yeah. That's that, that's that I mean if I had to predict something I would say that um there's not going to be one party that's going to be able to command a, 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 sim, a simple majority in the um in the parliament after this election which is basically the only way that you would then have some sort of decision going forward. Weirdly, this is my my sort of personal frustration. Even if Labour did win, I still don't know what they would do because I still don't think they have a, I mean, they have a vague plan that maybe they'll have another referendum, but that's also not a plan. What are you going to have a referendum on? And so um, even if Labour did have a majority, that I think is also not decisive because Labour hasn't been decisive about what it wants about Brexit. So, and I just, I just don't think that the, 
that the Tories are going to get uh, a majority. I mean, this is exactly what Theresa May tried, as, as Mike, Mike said, and failed. Um, yes, Boris Johnson's a better campaigner, but he's a much more divisive figure as well. So um, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to vote against Boris Johnson rather than... You know, I wonder about memories as well, you know, in terms of uh, you know, people have very short memories, voters do. Um, and so it will be a question as to, you know, sort of what issue between now and December is front and foremost in their minds. Um, I don't think they're going to cast back. They certainly are going to cast back to the failed coalition, you know, with Lib Dems yeah. kind of yeah. blew it. That's so far, you know, we care about this, or at least I care about this kind of stuff, but nobody else, certainly none of the voters are going to care about that. And so I don't think that's going to factor into voting for or against the Lib Dems because they remember what a disaster it was the last time they had any power at all. But watch and see, you know, if something in early December pops up that has, that it has focused the British voters mind, and I don't yet know what that is. I wish I had that clairvoyance. I would be a lot wealthier, but <laughs> something in early December to focus their minds, that's going to hinge, you know, that's going to be what the election hinges on. How does that complicate it, though? It seems like Labor and conservatives, they're pushing for the same thing outside of Brexit. They're saying, we need to put more money in NHS, we need to do more. It's not like America, where it's, we're going to do something completely different outwardly. It's, we kind of want the exact same thing. Stop worrying about this Brexit thing. We need to worry about healthcare. We need to worry about infrastructure. But it's like, okay, then what, what are you actually doing? What, how are you different from this guy? I mean, there, I think the general population has a pretty ingrained sense of which party they trust more to give money to the NHS, right? Is it going to be the Tories, the party of Margaret Thatcher, or is it going to be Labour, right? I mean, no matter what the campaign promises are, there I think, you know, there is still an identification of either you are Tory or you're, you're Labour, and, and it's a sort of class identification, and, and generally are you for public spending? So I think, you know, um, Boris Johnson saying, oh, we're going to spend this much on the NHS, right? Like, that's how he campaigned for Brexit, too, is that this is going to bring a bunch of money to the NHS, and that was a blatant so they, lie. He tried so, to destroy that, but kind of failed. Yeah. yeah, and it also comes down to pro and anti-austerity, right? So people, yeah, Thatcher is this, you know, sort of sacrosanct figure in some households and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, loathed figure in other households, but she's in the past. What I think they remember more is the austerity of the of the conservative party there and uh, you know sort of after the financial crisis and so it's going to be you know so they're arguing for the same thing let's put more money into nhs but one party is saying we need to you know sort of build it from the strength that it already is another party is saying no you broke it right and we will you know we have to fix it and yeah these are pretty classic uh divisions that exist in every general election so, yeah, we'll see how this plays out. If, you know, sort of British fisher people are going to have anything to say about this, working class folks who have, you know, the folks who have been instrumental in pushing uh, Farage's party, you know, populism. I think we're really going to see both parties take that, both big parties are going to take that populist strain and try to incorporate that and, and own it uh, and sort of say, you know what, we can, you, you belong with us. Uh, as opposed to out there on a on a separate party, and that's another very interesting phenomenon. I think we'll see play out here. We in a might few have weeks. to have you guys back on just to talk about the results of yeah, this election yeah, in the spring because it'll be interesting. Let's let's move on to the EU. So this new uh, EU, the new Commission is being formed under Ursula uh, von der Leyen. I my, I never took German, so my pronunciation is probably uh, off a little bit there. 
But, I mean, she really is a fascinating figure reading her biography, right? Because her father was one of these kind of old guard EU guys in the bureaucracy, and she grew up uh, going to the you know European uh, schools, I think, in Brussels. And so on the one hand, she's this kind of um, old guard uh, pro-EU um, person. On the other hand, she's, you know, and she's part of Merkel's party. But on the other hand, she seems to have these conservative uh, sensibilities and she's tied to the, uh, you know, the European people's part of the center, right? And so I guess the question is where, how is her, uh, commission going to differ from the Juncker commission? Where could it be possibly different? And what do you think about some of these early moves that she's done renaming some of the, <laughs> some of the portfolios? Um, what, what are your thoughts? Um, some of just a couple of things out there and then we'll sort of, um, see what, see what sticks, right? I think, you know, one one question every time that a commission is formed is, is it going to try to be a very strong force for um, for what's called communitarizing more policies, meaning um, taking away uh, decision-making powers from the member states and putting them into the hands of the European Commission, which is an independent organization. So is it basically going to be in constant conflict with member states? And I think it's very clear that that's not the path that's coming. So Ursula von der Leyen is very much has her entire career has been in national politics. She thinks that the EU is a collection of nation states. She's not a committed federalist who thinks that um, <clears throat> that the European Commission should be able to um, to to expand its power. Um, so in that sense, that's following along with what Juncker um, thought. Juncker was a former um, prime minister of Luxembourg, and he also, for the most part, was. Um, was in this vein of, of 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 thinking about the EU in less federal terms. I think Ursula von der Leyen was going to be even more so. Um, so I think in that sense, um, her the commission underneath her isn't going to be terribly strong. Add to that that she herself, um, she was defense minister um, in uh, in Germany, but she was not a former prime minister like Juncker. So her clout, I think, you know, she she's going to have a very tough time telling Emmanuel Macron what to do. Um, and I don't think she's even going to try. So I think, oh, wow. I think, so I think on that on that front, it's just in terms of personalities. I don't expect um, her, for instance, to take up all of those really, really hard political questions, whether it's sanctioning Hungary and Poland on um, on uh, you know the the various ways in which uh, those governments are uh, undermining the rule of law in their countries, um, going after you know corruption in EU funds, all this stuff. I don't expect her to be very, very strong on that. Um, so that on that front, I think it's going to be a relatively weak commission. On the other hand, I think she will need to focus on some policy area where she can make a case for why Europe matters. And from the couple of things that I've read so far, she seems to have decided to basically just go for a European version of the Green New Deal and to make Europe or the European Union the sort of primary pusher for um, climate change uh, mitigation slash adaptation policies and basically just to, to, to focus her term on that, which I think is smart because generally the, Amer the, the European population, the European citizens probably expect the EU to do that and are probably in favor of doing that. So that I think is going to be the sort of direction that she, yeah. um, that she goes in. But then, yeah, in, in terms of how effective she's going to be if this creates conflict with member states. I think I'm, 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 I'm generally more pessimistic, and, and it makes, but I don't know what it, it makes sense for the EU to lead on something like that because this is a, a collective action problem. So it's a very natural yeah. uh, issue for her to take up. Yeah. I mean, I would go even <clears throat> further uh, and say, 
the commission has very effectively made itself irrelevant to European Union policy in so many ways, really since the financial crisis. Uh, and, and just, you know, sort of the Juncker Commission was so famously, I don't want to say inept because that's, that implies that it didn't do anything. It actually did a lot, but just poorly, right? Um, and, and deliberately, I think. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, it actually sort of, del- I think that's a good way to put it. It deliberately moved itself to the background of European affairs. I mean, so Lauren said, you know, sort of Europe of the nation states. That's a Gaullist way of thinking about the European Union, right? And I think we have absolutely moved back into a sort of nineteen late 70s way of thinking about the European Union and, and the European Union acting in that way. If you ask, aside from the listeners, right, and the folks in this room, Ordinary Europeans have no clue who Ursula von der Leyen is, except possibly Germans, you know, because she's the defense minister or that sort of thing. They don't even really have a good interpretation of what the commission does, let alone, you know, sort of do they care that, you know, she's proposing to rename some of the commission and portfolios and consolidate? No, they really don't, right? Because the commission itself has failed and has... You know, has failed for years. This isn't anything new. It is, you know, sort of, it has purposely, willfully set itself in the background and allowed the na- nation state leaders uh, to step forward. So, yeah, Macron is, is most certainly pushing his own agenda because he can. And the commission is not pushing back because it can't or won't, right? And so, old wine and new bottles, right? You're going to have a commission, a new commission that is going to follow through on exactly the same sort of policies. Yes, it will pitch a Green New Deal, but it will not, or, you know, sort of the European version. But, it, you know, Macron has also been pushing this very, and that's his, his name is the one that's associated with this, right? When, when Merkel steps down and Akaka steps in as the new leader in Germany, as the new CF, uh, as the CDU leader, and so she will follow through, you know, Germany will continue doing what it's doing. I would pay much more attention to the way uh, European Council meeting, you know, again, sort of take place, the kind of things that are taking, uh, uh, the kind of issues that are debated uh, among the leaders of the nation states, because for me, the commission is, is rapidly approaching irrelevance. I think what I would add to that is that up until now, right, um, the the general sort of theory or understanding of the of the European Union has been that you need to have further and further integration for any of this to make sense, right? The European Commission only has stuff to do, like nine to five every day, if you're working on proposals to integrate more and more policies together. That's what they do. They come up with policies, right? That's, there's thousands of people doing this. It hasn't really done any of that in the past couple of years. Um, or only in, in in minor areas. What it has tried to do in the past couple of years is sort of keep the whole thing from falling apart, right? Um, yeah, and that's pretty and, weak beer when you... And, and one, it's yeah. weak beer. Two, it's not really set up to do that. Like, those people who work there aren't there to try and keep this political project together and, and, and sort of corral member states. That's not what they're good at. They're good at looking at, you know, um, data roaming policies and be like, how do we... How do we make sure that, you know, T-Mobile can't charge you, you know, 15 cents a, a minute extra for making a call from Luxembourg rather than in Belgium, right? And getting into the, the weeds. That's what they do. And so what I think is interesting is that up until now, what we've seen is, you know, you've had sort of more and more integration in the past, I would say, 10 years or so. 
that has really slowed down. You really haven't had very major... Basically, the, the data privacy initiative is, is, is the only real major European piece of legislation that I can think of, European Union legislation that has made a real splash or any difference. Um, but now what I think is going to happen is I think we will start to see for the first time uh, some policy areas being repatriated to the nation states. And that is that is very new. That hasn't really happened much before in the past. Um, and it's a slippery slope because it, that basically means sort of chipping away at some of um, European integration. I think that's going to start happening. You already saw, see it happening in practice when it mm -hmm. comes to the Schengen zone, right, With um, which is the free movement, of the, the zone that allows for free movement of, of people within, within the EU's borders. And since the migration crisis, there's actually been all sorts of new restrictions on freedom of movement, um, border checks that are technically illegal under EU law taking mm -hmm. place in Austria and Denmark and all over the place. Um, so you, you, that's already kind of started to happen, and I wonder whether some of it is going to start being being formalized. And that that I think is going to be very that that's the to me that's the sort of bellwether to look for is do we see actual institutional formal decisions that repatriate powers to the member states? Because yes. that to me is is a is an alarm bell. That's exactly right. And you know, I mean, the migration crisis fifteen and sixteen when the Commission threw up its hands, you know, and Dublin was. Such a sort of disaster in terms of actually applying it, and we're talking. We've been talking migration reform. The, there's a new migration reform initiative on the table just today, the eighth of November, just today. Uh, this note, you know, the the commission had the opportunity to to make a European level policy, and it failed spectacularly with everything that's happened since then. I mean, I, I squarely lay the blame for a lot of sort of European inaction and the that slippery slope is basically enabled by a very poor commission. But, but hold on, isn't this slippery slope in a way an existential threat yeah. to the EU? Because I remember when we had you on last time, Dr. Ada, you kind of said that integration is like a bike and if, and if you stop going forward, then you're going to keel over and fall. And so now, if I mean, it seems to me if the pendulum starts swinging in this way, Things could unravel quickly for the EU and, it, and how it's going to affect the national politics in these states. They're going to light bulbs are going to go off and say, oh, well, let's let's continue this process. Speed it up. Actually, Look, 25 years from now, we're going to look back and say the high light of the European Union, the high point of the European Union in terms of integration. Right. The crest of the wave for your it was was right the now. 90s, the 90s. At, yeah and, and maybe maybe i mean you're going to push I would, it maybe to, to, to lisbon it, i would put it 2009 yeah, okay, so where lisbon, the, right exactly um, this sort is where of crests well the sort of the 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 end of the end of the big enlargement boom Fair enough. to romania and bulgaria right and sort of the yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of sort of legislation going on um in the in the early 2000s um but i think sort of yeah the 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 financial crisis would 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 certainly be the sort of yep. end, and so what you're seeing then, if you follow through with the wave metaphor, is that you know that's the high water mark, right? That's the mark on the wall, and that we have been receding ever since. And now what's happening is we've been receding in a way that's very much ad hoc, you know, and it's sort of as these policies have, you know, as crises have emerged, and as the EU as an institution has failed to address these crises from Brussels.
then you get this kind of ad hoc chipping away of the project. If, as Lauren says, though, if we start institutionalizing those, if we start rolling back, uh, I, I just a few weeks ago pulled out all of my stuff on multi-speed Europe and, and mm-hmm. a la carte Europe and all the stuff that we were talking about in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, like, oh, this wasn't, that's the last big existential crisis, right? And um, I think that's coming back, right? I mean, it's this nice sort of cyclical reaction to, uh, you know, does the EU have the ability, the capacity maybe even, to handle these big questions that demand, you know, a sort of European answer and, and it's failed to do so. So my question is, where are the federalists? I know that, like, for example, in the European Parliament, um, the, the Greens made gains and there was a lot of supporters amongst the Greens for a strong federal Europe. Where, where are they all hiding out and when could they potentially, if at all, in any way, make kind of a, a comeback and really uh, put up a, a stronger game for a federal Europe? I mean, I, I always think that, you know, European federalists, except maybe in the 90s, um, were always in the minority. Um, what they managed to do is sell... Uh, different kinds of integration projects as not a federalist project, right? So, like the the, the whole beauty and the the kind of um, I don't know if it's it, it's the beauty. I'm, I'm looking for a good word for this. The sort of um, the, the sort of greatest trick, right, that the EU ever pulled, right, um, is that it it managed to convince people that these different steps of integration were um, each worthwhile without ever thinking about the 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 whole right so like everybody was like yeah of course it makes sense for us to um be able to 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 travel across borders without without a passport of course it makes makes of course it makes sense the common currency so i don't have to constantly change money of course it makes sense for us to have if we have a common currency to have a common central bank so that you know finance ministers can't play rough with with exchange rates of course it makes sense for us to you know have one one rule about data privacy because you know but nobody but nobody really sold this ever as like, so as part of our grand project to make the nation state irrelevant and create a European federalist state. Because that was scary. Right? Right? Yeah, right. Because that, that was never popular except mm-hmm. for people like us, right, who are big city cosmopolitan liberals, right? 3,000 miles away. Yeah. Um, or immediate post-war folks who saw what the nation states had done, right? So yeah, European federalism has its high watermark in the 50s, right? Yeah. So. yeah. Um, and so I think so I think the, the, those federalists are still there in exactly the same numbers, but those numbers are sort of 20% of the population, right? And so that is not the way to to see if this if this kind of rolling back of um, of uh, EU integration can be avoided, the the way to do it is to convince people again that it's necessary to have European integration. And where I see this, you know, and I I don't think this is actually going to work. But if I were to try to work on this right now, what I would do it on is security, because a lot of people in Europe, especially in the past two months are worried that NATO is not going to defend them anymore. And, and I you've think got that one of the European leaders with an interview in The Economist calling right. NATO brain dead, right? right. I mean, yeah, so, right. saw that. Yeah. And so, and that I think is, is a potential, like that, that's where I would sort of try to try to do more integration because weirdly enough, even though everybody talks about, oh, how, um, you know, national defense is the last bastion of sovereignty. That's what nobody in terms of the European populace cares about. 
Having a European army, having uh, continent-wide security policies has always been, for the past 40 years, popular among voters. Partially because, you know, there aren't big militaries in most countries, so most, most people, you know, there's not, there's not like a huge pride in the Slovakian military. Like, that's just not a thing. And so, uh, but people do see now that there are there are threats that need to be uh, need to be addressed and I think there's been a I, I think justified um, change in in the trust in uh, that Europeans have in NATO and so that that is where I think you can you could potentially do something is, is, is kind of common security policy I don't think it's going to happen but that's kind of yeah it's true I mean because the federalist argument especially when you're talking about domestic policies you know things like agricultural policy things that affect your day-to-day life federalism is a really easy argument to make in the negative, right? And this is where the populists are like, really, you want Brussels telling you, I mean, this is where Boris Johnson makes his reputation, right? You know, so, and it it's so easily translatable into every country's specific circumstances, right? And I mean, we had the same experiment in the American experience, and it was a, it was a touch and go for a while, right? Whether or not federalism was actually going to be the way we went forward. And that is, in some respects, uh, the exception that proves the rule. And Europe is so much more complicated. So the populists have an easy, I mean, if they, that's their dream is for Europe to go all in, the EU to go all in on, hey, you know, why don't we just call it what it is and make this thing a federal project? Because the populists, they don't even have to work hard for that one. And I agree with Lawrence, the security angle, yeah, we have, you know, professional militaries, non-draft armies, all the sorts of things that make security essentially way down on the list uh, in terms of priorities for people. So it could be a kind of stealth move in some ways to allow the European Union to regain capability and capacity in a different way than creating a national, you know, a big army. That's not what we're talking about. Capability development is so much more than just, you know, sort of traditional militaries. The problem, though, is I wrote a paper about this for Lawrence um, last... Sem- That's uh, a nice plug you did right there. Yeah. <laughs> last semester <laughs> is that is that PESCO, has they already embraced this more intergovernmental structure that's a la carte and basically says pick pick what you want and so now i mean i agree it could work out in a way that it it does kind of reboot the integration talks but it could also work out in a way where it doesn't and it just remains very a la carte and then it it doesn't pesco is all things to all people that's the beauty and the curse of it Uh, that's that's what i think the trouble is right is that um there would be a lot of popular support for even actually i think for a european army um but they are it's so much intergovernmental, like the, the, the governments really hold all of the cards, right? Um, whereas in those areas where where maybe governments don't hold as many cards, or there's at least a bigger um, influence of NGOs and, um, and and citizens, right? Like those are the bread and butter issues that that then the populace can really um, go after. So I think it's it's this kind of weird catch twenty two is that the, the easiest things to maybe put on a supernatural a supernational level in terms of uh, popular consent are the ones that are least um, affected by popular opinion, right? And I mean, any army that you use meal piece together in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, I mean, they're going to be dwarfed by everyone around them. I mean, it reminds me like, you know, a cop telling a firefighter to go save a cat in a tree. I think America's going to be like, hey, you go you know, fix an election in Southeast Asia. We'll deal with the actual real conflict in the world. Well, th- what I do think is different, right, is that I do not think most European citizens have thought of any kind of military threat being existential for them or being real for them in the past 40 years. I'd go further than that, but yeah, you're right. It's um, certainly but may- maybe more. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, at least one or two generations. Yep. Right. That is changing. 
right? And I think Crimea changed that. I think Ukraine changed that. I think to a certain extent, the migration crisis changed that, right? And the fact that the, the, the underlying assumption was always, first of all, there are no real security threats anymore. Who wants to invade Europe? That just, that just doesn't happen, right? Europeans didn't think that that was ever going to happen. Two, even if they did, the US is going to bail us out. Both of those have, I think, changed in the last five years. Yep. Um, and that is, that is a big shift, right? And so there, it's not that you need necessarily a European army to go around, you know, colonizing the world or, or projecting power. This is really about defense, common defense, not necessarily a common sort of security policy for the outside. This is about who's actually going to be on the Hungarian-Ukrainian border, Hungarian army, well, that's going to last five minutes, mm-hmm. right? And so they are, you know, you just, you have this, this question of who's actually going to, 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 to be the, um, the, the guarantor of, of, of defense. And there, I think it's right now there's a vacuum. And the threats are expanding way beyond just traditional ones, right? So climate change uh, is causing the Arctic to thaw, obviously. And so now we've got, you know, Russia saying, hey, this is great. Um, we've got access routes mm-hmm. through the Arctic that are being uh, opening up, you know, sort of, and we're going to, this is ours now, right? You've got China calling itself a near Arctic power, right? You know, in Sweden and, and Finland are thinking, so that's not <laughs> great for, you know. And so uh, many of the ways we can talk about European security policy are so far beyond just these traditional threats of, you know, sort of Russian incursion or you know, Iranian threats or whomever. It's really we're talking about challenges as much as threats that have very strong security implications for not just Northern Europe, but the entire continent. I think this is a great moment to segue into our last topic, which is Ukraine. I know that in 2016, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker said that Ukraine could join the EU and NATO in about 20 to 25 years. So from next year, that would be 16 uh, years. You know, he was saying that when Poroshenko was president, it was only two years into the conflict. And I think he thought that if the conflict was going to continue in about the same state, definitely kind of frozen, but without any diplomatic development on it. Now we have this new Ukrainian president, uh, Zelensky, who has making, who's really going all in on the, on the peace process and is going to do the Steinmeier formula. And I don't want to talk about whether it's good or bad for Ukraine. I want to talk about whether, you know, if Ukraine does, can get some kind of tentative peace, how does that affect their ability to eventually join the EU and NATO? And, and what do you guys think about that time frame? Could, could Ukraine be in the EU or NATO in 15 years? You know why years? politicians like 20 to 25 year time frames? Because they're not going to be in office when 20 to 25 years comes or around. Alive. That is one of those. Yeah. Or even alive. Exactly right. That's one of those great. As soon as I hear anybody talk 20, 25 years, I discount it immediately. Right. Because that is something that is a convenient speech line and it gives folks the warm fuzzies because they give, ah, yeah, that could be us. It's not. Ukraine, I will go on record right now as saying Ukraine is not going to be a member of either the European Union or NATO in my lifetime. Ukraine has such deep structural problems. It doesn't matter who occupies the presidency of Ukraine. I don't care how much of a reformer you are. I don't care how much of a broom you bring, you know, to sweep away. The structural problems in Ukraine date back to the early days of the, you know, sort of post-Cold War era. And they haven't been fixed yet, right? So we're 30 years in. Tomorrow's the 30th anniversary of the fall of the wall. There are so many problems with Ukraine that transcend the, you know, sort of what Juncker, he's making that speech as an applause line in many ways, right? What Juncker was saying, what what, what, uh, Zelensky or anybody is saying. 
Is it possible? Sure. All things are possible, right? We're going to have colonies on Mars here in 20 to 25 years if you talk to Elon Musk, right? You know, I'm actually more inclined to believe that's going to happen first before Ukraine joins the European Union. NATO, maybe, but I don't think either of those things are realistic possibilities. Yeah, I, I, I think it's 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 even worse than that. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. I think with the recent decision to um, not start accession negotiations with um, Northern Macedonia. Yep. You had the first time, really, that that member states, current EU member states, were willing to go on the record as being the veto wielders. Wow! Did you on see the three who voted on I mean, enlargement? Right, yeah. the Dutch, the um, French, and the Danes. Right. Yeah. That I think broke a certain norm, right? That at least you kind of pretended, and then maybe you'd, you'd start the accession negotiations, and then you draw them. Exhibit out. A, Turkey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Turkey was the exhibitor. Yeah, exactly. So the, the you know, uh, official negotiations have been going on since '95, correct? Yeah, that, that thing, and right? informal ones since the '60s. Right. So and and you, so the general EU idea was, you know what? Let's just sort of keep it going, and we'll we'll just we'll, we'll pretend like we're still um, talking about it, but um, but clearly everybody knows that 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 we're not. The fact that the EU is willing to go on, well, not the EU again, that mm-hmm. certain member states were willing to say no, we're going to put a stop to EU enlargement. I think. That makes me think that all EU enlargement for the next decade is dead in the water. Um, that means anybody by now is going to also feel empowered to say, "Oh, well, let's just let's just vote that down." Um, and you you have so many you know reasons, and different member states might have different reasons to to, to stall some sort of um, enlargement process. That you know, not even thinking about the Ukraine, but a much more plausible. Um, like Northern Macedonia is plausibly, you know, if Croatia and Slovenia are in, like Northern Macedonia should be as well on all normal measures. Um, but I don't think even that's going to happen in the next 20, 25, 25 years. Wow. So I agree with, I agree with Mike. I think, I think EU enlargement has basically also peaked, right? So we've had the, the, the maximum number of member states was also in 2000. Um, well, no, I guess after Croatia. Um, yeah, we'll and, the uh, but, but roughly in this, out, yeah. in this period. And now we have maybe potentially one, one state leaving, Right. Um, so I, I actually think that that it's that it's it's worse than just just Ukraine. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly. A very dark picture, in my opinion. <laughs> it's definitely and, a big. Uh, let's speak to Partridge. It used to be the five-year treatment too, which is kind of the pilots talking to the passengers when the plane's stuck on the runway, saying we're going to take off in thirty minutes, which does not mean thirty minutes. Right. It's long enough so you don't get pissed. Yep. Yeah. But if you say we're going to take off in two weeks, people are just going to be confused. Which is the twenty-year treatment? Yeah. Then it's like, no, we're not taking off, but uh, don't get off the plane. Yeah, That's just nice. a totally different situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 I think the danger is right that 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 these states do get off the plane. Yeah. And the problem is, I don't know where they get off to. Right? Like, think think about like Northern Macedonia. Like, they've got nowhere to go. Right? I mean, they don't. Turkey at least has some sort of options to realign its foreign policy, mm-hmm. and like it's 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 doing it already. Right? I don't know where. Like, there's just going to be this weird hole in the middle of Europe because there's really nowhere else for, yeah. for Mont, you know, Montenegro. Yeah, right, they they right. don't have any like, what are they going to, they can't like really align themselves with Russia. That doesn't work either. So mm-hmm. I don't know. They're kind of stuck. I would not they like to be a Northern Macedonian and, politician. You know, the today. fact that it was the three countries and again, you know, sort of Macron spent a lot of political capital on that, right? And then the Dutch and the Danes were like, this is fantastic. We can vote no and not take any hit, right? Uh, the, neither of those two would have gone on their own and vetoed, right? So the fact that Macron stepped up, and this is really instructive, right? So one of the six, one, well, two of the founding six voting against accession, uh, I think you're, yeah, I think you're onto something there that, you know, this might be it. This might be as big as the EU gets. And yeah, <laughs> we may be going the other direction. 
Wow, that's scary. I just, I, just because I was in Ukraine recently, and it's in their constitution that they're joining. Uh, they, they are, they are so all in on this. And I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people are just going to be very confused and angry when they realize that this is not even in the cards in a long term perspective. And what it's going to lead to is it's going to lead to a, a kind of. Ukraine wanting to go back into Russia's orbit, and uh, that could also have really dangerous be, consequences for the EU itself. So it'll be exactly what we said with Britain, except instead of politely demonstrating in front of Westminster, it'll be violent demonstrations on the streets and or a resumption of the war in Donbass, and you know, or a full blown. Yep, you know what? They sold us out. Uh, what do you got for us, Russia? Yes, I mean, we're on the edge of our time. And I mean, it's just it just makes me feel like the legacy of the EU is they're sort of a peacetime power where they can, you know, push through all these economic reforms, introduce the euro, this political integration when things are fine. But when things actually need to change, when there's immediate conflict, it's it's kind of a sling to the idea of integration on this sort of scale. I think part of that is that the expectations are different, right? So like there are plenty of challenges. And if you think about, you know, I mean, again, tomorrow is the anniversary, right? The, the Berlin Wall falling. The EU managed that pretty well, right? I mean, we have one Germany now. That was not at all clear what was going to happen with Germany. Nobody knew what was going to happen. You know, nobody knew what was going to happen in all of um, Central and Eastern Europe. Is it going to be, you know, all turn into this, all turn into the Balkans, essentially, right? And it didn't. And I think that's that's mostly due to the EU. Um, but then the EU was, see, we're saying, started saying, oh, see, we're a geopolitical power. We are the future. Right. And then all of a sudden the expectations grew. And I think by now you're seeing that the limits of these expectations are, are, are now too, too high and the EU can't deal with them. Right. right. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is, and this is, this is more of a personal, I just think there was a different kind of political leadership back then. And that maybe has to do with the nature of politics, but, um, François Mitterrand and Helmut Kohl were willing to burn a lot of political capital and weather a lot of conflict. Um, Thatcher as well. And, I mean, and in, yeah. weirdly, Thatcher yeah. as well, right? Um, to to actually make European integration happen. Like there were there were some these were not these were not easy compromises to make. I don't see anybody on the scene in terms of national leaders right now in Europe. Of anybody who's who, who has that kind of willingness to really stake their their reputation on on Europe, right? Um, Macron weirdly is staking on European issues, but not on Europe itself. He's he's making big bold decisions on Europe, but I think they're you know they're not for integration. So um, so that that I think makes a difference too. Yeah, I would put it as a victim of its own success in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's the timeline that you laid out there, right? 30 years tomorrow is the fall of the wall, not that long after the Balkans, the beginning of the sort of um, Potemkin village of the, you know, the EU failing uh, Mm -hmm. to handle issues on a larger scale. And, you know, and just from there, the litany, the drumbeat, you know, you can just sort of start to see where the EU has these hits to credibility over and over and over again. And so it's no surprise that national leaders are elected and the EU is not on the agenda. And what's, what's always interesting with these, right, is that you you never have the luxury of um, of having the actual what if, right? So what's going to be really interesting is, of course, the EU is terrible at dealing with all these crises. But honestly, if you expect any of the EU member states to to find Facebook and Google like two billion euros or whatever it was, or um, uh, you know, be like, oh no, you're evading tax and therefore we're going to slap you with a record fine, well, forget it, right? So 
Um, just because the EU isn't doing these things well doesn't mean that if it actually starts falling apart, things are going to get better. I think they're going to get worse. Um, but that's, you know, um, that, that's always hard to... This, this is always the trick for, for European federalists and also for generally pro-Europeans to, to, to explain is um, the so-called cost of non-Europe. Like, what would it be like if you didn't have the EU? And it's really hard to explain because the EU is just everywhere. Right? Like, and, and, and I don't think people realize that, right? Um, that, that almost all aspects of life in Europe are, are influenced by European Union rules and, and, and regulations and, 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 and just the role of the EU. And so um, that's why I think it's, it's going to be very... Um, tricky to see if it starts again as I was talking about like if you institutionalize the rolling back of the EU you all of a sudden are going to get a bunch of um, uh, a bunch of effects that nobody everybody's going to claim they couldn't have foreseen right and they said well Brexit will give us our first empirical test right yeah. and sort of like you know here's life without the EU good luck yeah, yeah. Alrighty, well, I think that's the end of our time. Hopefully, when we next talk, uh, breaks will still be going on. Yeah, you, get, you, guys content. Painted, yeah. you guys painted a pretty dark picture, but hopefully, if we have you back on next hopefully semester... the EU's still around. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the EU will be around. The so. EU is like, so I tell my students, the EU is like a drunk, you know? It just sort of wanders its way down the street, stumbling, but never quite falling, right? Yeah. And it's got this kind of, that's the reputation that it's got, and it somehow has stayed upright for all these years. I'm, you know, I'm a committed Europeanist. I think it's going to be around, but I also want to be super careful of not giving it too much, uh, you know, sort of credit where it doesn't deserve. I didn't know I had so much in common with uh, the EU. <laughs> but thank you, guys. It was fun. Thank you, thank guys. You. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Mirta Bashalovic. I'm a global policy student at the LBJ School. I study European policy and I'm here with European Horizons to invite you all to attend our event on November 22nd that's going to be focused on human rights and multilateral settings. We have two amazing guests coming. One is Alexander Schutzman, who is a senior advisor at the office of the president of the UN General Assembly. And the other one is Ambassador Silvio Gonzalo. He is a deputy head of delegation of European Union to the UN. Both are great delegates, great EU experts, and we think it's going to be an amazing event. So please show up. It's going to be fun. And see you there on November 22nd.